This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. CBS presents America Changed Forever with CBS News correspondent Jeff Pegues. Good day to you and welcome to America Changed Forever. This holiday season will not be the same for a lot of families across this country who are mourning the loss of loved ones. This has been another difficult year for all Americans. The pandemic is taking a toll, and sadly, so is this epidemic of substance abuse. Just this week, the Department of Justice announced $300 million in grants to fight the opioid and stimulant crisis, as well as to address substance use disorders. According to the Department of Justice, there were an estimated 100,306 drug overdose deaths in the United States, during the 12-month period that ended in April of 2021. That's an increase of nearly 30% from the same period the year before. According to the Centers for Disease Control, fentanyl overdoses have killed more people aged 18 to 45 since 2020 than COVID, car accidents, and even suicides. The feds are surging resources to cut off the distribution of deadly synthetic drugs like fentanyl. So far this year, about 20 million fake pills have been seized, according to the DEA. But what's clear is that so much more needs to be done at all levels of government and law enforcement. First, we're going to hear from Dr. Joseph Lee of the Hazelden Betty Ford Foundation. And we see families who have generations after generations of addiction. And they parented well, they messaged well, they did everything they could. Uh, and, and that risk is still there. Then Sam Quinones, who is the author of the book, The Least of Us. He has chronicled the opioid crisis. Traffickers have learned that they can expand their business by including fentanyl in the cocaine. When they do that, eventually that person will become a fentanyl addict. Then we're going to hear from the DEA administrator, Ann Milgram, who sat down with Face the Nation moderator, Margaret Brennan. So it's cheap to make. It's relatively easy to make. Tiny quantities of fentanyl are incredibly potent and addictive and can be deadly. That's later in this broadcast. But first, Dr. Joseph Lee, who is the CEO and president of Hazelton Betty Ford Foundation. The first question I asked him is if this country is taking the correct approach to confronting this crisis. Well, I think we're learning along the way. You know, uh, I'm a clinician by trade. I'm a child psychiatrist. I'm also board certified in addiction medicine. And, you know, the, the way I like to look at things in, in therapy is I like to look at the, the strengths of individuals and the positives. Uh, I'm also realistic. And so have we made mistakes along the way? Absolutely. Uh, can we do things better? Absolutely. So there's a humility in the approach. Uh, but is this a real opportunity for us to do things better, to serve the people that we care about in a, in a uh, more impactful way? Uh, I think so. So uh, I think there are many mistakes that we've made along the way, uh, but I hope that we can learn from those mistakes and do better uh, going forward. And we've done some good things, too, uh, in, in the whole uh, 
substance use uh, epidemics that are that are going on. Well, you talk about some of these mistakes, and I'm not going to have you list them all, but can you point to one that you think was a major mistake? Well, there's uh, a lot of them, actually, and they're all kind of interconnected. You know, so you can look at policy. People talk a lot about the, the war on drugs and the punitive uh, attitudes towards people who use substance use disorders and and that is an organization that for 70 plus years have provide, provided a haven and a, and a speaking platform for people with uh, addictions. Um, you know, th- that kind of rhetoric never really sat well with us. Uh, but there were other mistakes that were decades long in the making. This is not just pharmaceutical companies coming in and pushing pills, which certainly happened. Uh, but decades before, uh, addiction not being recognized as a disease and therefore not being a part of mainstream healthcare, uh, that was a huge mistake, and it had huge bearings and implications, and uh, really left us unprepared. Ignited the flame for overprescribing without good monitoring. So, uh, you know, we could spend days talking about the the mistakes, but they're interconnected in many ways. It's policy, infrastructure, societal view, stigma, all of it. I just got back from Miami following the Coast Guard. And their effort to to stop the flow of drugs into the U.S. And when I would ask them, you know, wh- what is the key here? And they would, you know, many different sources there would say, you know, it's always about the demand in this country. You know, these these cartels know that there is this uh, insatiable demand uh, and that's how they are making their money. So how, you know, Dr. Lee, how do you change that dynamic here in this country? Because it's been an issue in this country for decades now. Yeah, you're right. Uh, there is something about American culture uh, compared to many other countries. We consume a lot of fossil fuels and fast food and we eat more calories and uh, we, we spend more money. And uh, we also use more substances uh, than than some other countries. And so there is a cultural element and there's not an easy fix to that, but you know what? Leaders bring solutions and there actually have been uh, targeted efforts that have led to decreases in demand and consumption. The best example, which was reversed a little bit by vaping, by the way, uh, was uh, traditional nicotine use. Uh, Over decades, traditional nicotine use has fallen uh, rather dramatically, especially in young people. And that was because of really smart public health initiatives, advertisements that you and I saw on TV and whatnot. Um, and so there was a concerted effort. So you can actually change things in, in terms of public perception and demand. And we have done that in a targeted way, uh, but it hasn't been for all substances. And so, um, you know, we need to be probably more proactive. Uh, there probably needs to be better resourcing. There are other cultural elements that are harder to fix. Uh, but there are uh, ways that we can make an impact and make sure that uh, less people have bad outcomes from substance use. As you were answering that question, I was thinking, okay, what about the legalization of marijuana? Has that led to more addiction or less? Well, it's a complicated question because not everybody's the same. So um, if you take alcohol for an example, and I'll get to marijuana, 30% of the people in the country don't drink alcohol. People who can, uh, about a third of the Americans don't drink alcohol. Another third of Americans drink less than one drink a week. So you have over 60% of Americans who drink less than one alcoholic beverage a week. Then when you move to the other side of the graph, uh, the curve, you see that 20% of Americans drink 80% of the alcohol in the country. 
10% of Americans drink 50% or more of the alcohol supply in the entire country, okay? And I illustrate that with alcohol, not marijuana, to prove a point that not everybody is the same. So this kind of one-size-fits-all policy uh, is different depending on which cohort you're in, which which risk population you're in. And so uh, for a lot of people, they won't care if marijuana is legalized or not, or they just don't consume very much. But for a significant minority of people, they will be targeted, and legalization turns into commercialization, uh, and just like tobacco to tobacco and alcohol, because the profit margins need to come from the 10 to 20% of the population. And so you can have a kind of a utilitarian discussion in society in how we police this or, or, or have this set policy. But as a healthcare professional, my concern is always about that 10 to 20% of the population, how they're being advertised to, how they're being exploited for profit, and that changes the conversation. So I think uh, there are many ways to decriminalize and move substance use into the healthcare arena. Sometimes, though, the way we talk very broad-based, uh, broad brushstroke-wise about legalization, we're talking about straight-up commercialization, and the majority of Americans will be okay, but a significant minority will be impacted in a major way uh, that will impact all of us in the end. These are, you know, these are really important issues and discussions to have because there are so many families right now dealing with uh, the addictive and deadly fentanyl. Um, it it is something that we are, you know, I'm I'm I've done many stories for the CBS Evening News on the topic. Uh, obviously, law enforcement is concerned about fentanyl and its spread across the country. What are your thoughts on how law enforcement and communities are reacting or responding to this crisis? Well, unfortunately, um, <clears throat> as a clinician, having seen thousands of young people and their families, I saw this coming years ago. You know, we're now in the third wave of the opioid epidemic. Um, and the first wave was overprescribing, generally white populations in the suburbs who had access to oxycodone and prescription drugs, and they were passing away. And that, that caught people's attention because uh, the stories of these uh, suburban white kids passing away uh, really challenged uh, the stigmatized notion of addiction in the country. So people started to pay attention. People were paying, passing away in large, large numbers. So then we tried to regulate uh, the prescription drugs. A lot more news is coming out about how those drugs were being pushed in, in, in medical communities and whatnot, in pharmaceutical industries. Then the second wave was now you have this demand and a lot of people moved to heroin and you started to see a lot of people passing away from heroin. And there was a lot of movement then to uh, really solidify the use of medications as first line treatment for opioid use disorders, to use things like Narcan to reverse overdoses. And uh, we're fully in support of that. And, and we provide those services as well. Um, but now we're into a third wave. And I saw this coming years ago. And interestingly, uh, how this came about, because I see a lot of young people who are, let's say, entrepreneurial, okay, in their substance use. And so I'd see these kids who would deal from across the country. I saw every trend happening before the news picked it up by probably two and a half years. And, uh, and what you saw were, were young people using the dark web, uh, but they didn't trust anybody on the dark web because why would you? And uh, then cryptocurrency came around and cryptocurrency became this catalyst where people could anonymously purchase um, high-grade substances from clandestine labs from across the world uh, anonymously. And you could drop reviews like Amazon. 
And one of the drugs that I saw that people were purchasing most often was fentanyl. And this happened years ago, four or five years ago, I started to see this real trend pick up. Then you start to see these laboratories hook up with uh, black market operatives, if you will. And, and now it's everywhere. And, and it's economics because the, the fentanyl powder is very potent, very deadly, uh, but it's cheaper than getting some other substances because it's man-made, it's synthetic. So uh, you would mix it in, cut it into different drugs. And, and cutting drugs has been uh, an industry practice for forever. You know? and, and so now we're in a third era where lots of people are passing away from synthetic drugs. Um, and many of them don't even know that it's fentanyl, uh, but that's actually also evolved where there are some young people that I know and, and, and people of all ages who know it's fentanyl and, and they're still kind of playing Russian roulette with it. And, uh, it's really caught us off guard that combined with the pandemic and the isolation has really devastated communities. And, and that's why you see a lot of overdose deaths. And, uh, and so there are many solutions for it, but it's gotta be a multi-pronged approach because it has really overwhelmed us. The, the fentanyl crisis. And you said that you saw this coming a couple of years ago um, with your experience, with your knowledge. So if you're looking ahead now, what do you see as the next wave that you're concerned about? Well, I think it, it's not necessarily just a wave of which drug is going to come by. It's more that the, the, the black market has changed even if you look at things like meth, uh, how it's portrayed to be made in shows like Breaking Bad versus uh, the the purity of the methamphetamine going into different subpopulations um, and affecting people, it, it's the if you pay attention to the the the, the econ economics of it, <clears throat> that's what's really uh, shifted. Is that um, it's easier to get high grade, high highly potent substances in many different ways uh, than in the past. And I think that access is going to lead to a number of different substances hitting in different ways. And so, yeah, the fentanyl thing I started seeing about five years ago, then you started to see Xanax and other substances that are not opioids being cut with uh, fentanyl. Um, and I think you're going to see surges of other substances ride on th these new pathways that are created in the black market. So I can't say like which drug is it going to be. I, I don't think that's that's probably too sensationalist. I would just say most people should uh, understand that the, 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 the marketplace of how people are acquiring substances is vastly different than it was 10 years ago. Based on your experience, what is it about the human mind, human condition that allows for, um, you know, obviously it's, some people say it's hereditary, um, but what is it that makes someone susceptible to becoming addicted to a drug? Yeah, um, it's actually very, very basic. You know, the propensity for developing an addiction is very human uh, because we are conditioned creatures that learn over time how to respond to reward. It's very Pavlovian, uh, if you will, Pavlov's dog, you know, you ring a bell and give the dog food and it gets conditioned that when it hears the bell, food's going to come. And we just have genetic variation. Uh, people are, we're different than each other. We have some variation in how strong we get conditioned by certain rewards. And it's not just substances, it's electronics and video games and, and sex and food and different things, but drugs pack the, the most you know powerful punch. Um, and 
Uh, and so people are actually naturally wired to be conditioned by reward. And some people in our current modern context where we have too much of everything, um, they, they are vulnerable to developing <clears throat> unhealthy behavioral patterns that really negatively impact their lives and jeopardize it. But, but the vulnerability is not something that is uh, germ created. It's, it's very human. Uh, and then, of course, uh, there are uh, traumas and external factors and things that happen in a person's life story that also widen the vulnerability. But um, what, what's interesting about the stigma of addiction and how we don't like to talk about it or we like to paint it with a broad brushstroke or see it in a very black and white frame is that of all the disease states, of all the pathologic conditions, it is so fundamental to our behavioral patterns and our condition. And so it's kind of a mystery that something so ubiquitous uh, is is so stigmatized. Well, actually, it's not a mystery, but it is. Uh, the good news in that, though, the silver lining is um, human beings are incredibly resilient, and we have this innate need to connect. And we have values that uh, universally tend to align, may not be exactly the same, but align with people. And so there's actually a lot of hope for recovery despite addiction. And that's what you see in the field of addiction is I'm really blessed to work in this field because um, sometimes you see the worst parts of humanity in, in, in substance use, like sex trafficking and violence, but you also see the best in all of us. And that really shown through in the pandemic too, people holding meetings, AA meetings over Zoom, people trying to support each other. So there's something about this addictive process that I think if we are able to harness it and get people into recovery, also shows the best of us what we're capable of. And I don't want to misspeak, but is it, and I, and I talked about this when I asked that last question, but I mean, is it is it accurate to say that, you know, you know, I've heard people say, well, his father had a substance abuse problem, you know, is it hereditary or is that just, you know, some uh, sort of speculation that's been spread or is, is that, something that has been proven. No, it's, it's uh, quite proven. Uh, so, you know, the variance, I'm t talking kind of nerdy here, that the, um, if you kind of slice it up into a pie graph, what, what part of that pie is responsible uh, for causing what? And, and uh, people debate this, but, you know, my ballpark is about half of that variability in, in uh, variance and whether people develop an addiction or not is genetic. Uh, meaning, you know, they go to a party in high school, they uh, drink alcohol or, you know, uh, use some substance and how their brain responds to that reward and gets conditioned by it, the memories it forms, the strong magnetism it forms, uh, about half of that is genetic. And this is an important message because there, were there are certainly external variables that make things worse, lack of access to, to treatment, other stressors, psychosocial factors, social determinants of health, trauma, all these things, of course, are also vulnerabilities for addiction. Uh, but fundamentally, I see a lot of families who struggle with shame. And in our kind of silly American, quasi-Freudian way of looking at things, anytime something goes wrong, you know, parents look in the mirror and they, they feel like they did something wrong and they haven't done anything wrong. Uh, and the good news of this is at Hazel and Betty Ford, you know, we have uh, tens of thousands, if not more, of just, you know, poster children for recovery, people who have really dark times and then they find hope. And we see families who have generations after generations of addiction, and they parented well, they messaged well, they did everything they could, uh, and, and that risk is still there. 
So um, I think for, for people who are listening to this, a lot of the risk is genetic. You can modify it. There are external variables. Uh, but despite that, there's hope for you. And as we wrap this up, for people who are listening, and if they think they have a problem, who should they turn to? Well, you can start almost anywhere. A primary care doctor, a school counselor, um, your family members are a great resource. Um, and and you should know that there are lots of different kinds of treatments, um, outpatient therapy, virtual care now. Uh, you know, so, so there's a lot of ways to get help in a way that you find to be convenient and fitting. Uh, but I would connect with your loved ones, reach out to your primary care providers, and, and they'll guide the way for you. Uh, and we're always going to be a resource here at the Hazel and Betty Ford Foundation, of course. Um, and, and the good news is that there are millions of people in the country in recovery. And so, so one of the things about stigma is that um, people during the course of their ups and downs early in, in, in addiction, people feel like there's not hope or that there's people don't get well. And that's not true. We see people thriving. Uh, they just have to engage and stay with it. And there's lots of different ways to get help. Dr. Joseph Lee, thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been a real pleasure speaking with you on this very important topic. Sam Quinones is the author of the books The Least of Us, which is his latest offering, and Dreamland. Sam has chronicled the opioid crisis and has a perspective that I think is more informed than most on this issue. And that's evident in all of his books, but especially The Least of Us. Let's talk about your latest book. Why the follow-up? Because the the world had changed within the the five years since I had written Dreamland, um, particularly this with with regard to this the drugs that supply that was coming into our country that was now defining the epidemic. It was no longer so much the uh, the issue of uh, doctors over prescribing narcotic painkillers. It was now that that mantle had been taken up by the Mexican trafficking world. And what's more, uh, they had shifted away really from plant-based drugs that they grow on land under the sun and in favor of synthetic drugs that they can make without any plants involved, just in a lab uh, using chemicals, um, and meaning that they, if they can get the chemicals, they can make the, the, the drugs year-round and in quantities limited only by that access to chemicals. And it turns out they have almost a limitless supply of chemicals at their disposal through ports on the western side of Mexico, Pacific Coast side of Mexico. And they can therefore make these drugs in in, um, uh, uh, quantities we've never uh, seen, seen before. So all of this was changing the basic nature of the drug addiction epidemic in, in fundamental ways that I did not think were being uh, properly or completely uh, covered. And so hence the, the idea for the next book, The Least of Us. It really is fascinating. You describe the evolution of these cartels. I don't know if the majority of the American public understands how dangerous fentanyl is. We keep talking about it, but I don't know if the warnings are really breaking through. I don't think they they understand all the different ways in which it can be and is being sold. Um, I think a lot of people now get it that it's pretty dangerous. It's a very, very potent thing. By the way, it's a magnificent drug when used medically. I've had fentanyl in, during a surgery, and it's magnificent. It revolutionized anesthesia in this country. So it's not, not a, a useless drug. It's absolutely got a medical use. But in the hands of the underworld, of course, it's, it's, it's catastrophic, as we're seeing 
uh, uh, today. What I don't think people understand is that two things. One is now that it's being mixed into other drugs. So it's being mixed. First of all, it's mixed into heroin. I think people who are addicted to heroin and out of fentanyl understand that they're not getting any heroin anymore. It's pure fentanyl, really. The people I've talked to have no illusions in that regard. But it's also being mixed into cocaine. A lot of people think they're they're using cocaine, and really they're using cocaine plus fentanyl. That's how the great actor um, Michael Williams, Michael K. Williams, uh, died a couple months ago. Uh, he had a cocaine problem, and uh, he'd been battling with for many, many years, and used again, and that cocaine had 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 a fentanyl uh, analog in it. Um, I would say also that fentanyl is now coming out of Mexico, particularly in the form of counterfeit uh, uh, pharmaceutical pills, pills that look like Xanax bars or look like Percocets or Norcos or various other Adderall sometimes. Um, and, and they are they contain only fentanyl. And these pills are particularly um, dangerous because they look so much like the real thing. They are with the same markings, the same coloring and all that. And what's more is in the last year or two, we've seen that local dealers have seen have so much of this supply. There's so much of this stuff coming in that they now are, are have a, the big problem they face is not where do I get my dope? It's where to sell it. And w- the one place they've turned is to social media apps. So they're, be, they're selling this now, these pills that look like uh, uh, anti-anxiety pills or anti-pain pills or what have you. And really all they have in them is, is fentanyl. And these, these pills have multiplied to the tens of millions now um, uh, they're, they're producing out, out of Mexico just in staggering, staggering quantities. And I don't think, in answer to your question, I don't think families or parents uh, or many people understand that the street corner, the new street corner, particularly in the time of COVID, are Snapchat, Instagram, TikTok, some gaming platforms and some other uh, social media apps, where, which is where a lot of this stuff is now being sold, especially to younger folks. I'm assuming that it's still being sold on the dark web. I, I think it perhaps is being sold to some degree, but that was a function of it being of it coming out of China. None. This is all coming out of Mexico now. China was the first source of fentanyl back when all this began to erupt, uh, 2014, 15, 16, basically 17. They've they've known how to make fentanyl in in China since they had an agreement with the guy who invented it in 1985. Uh, they have a they had a factory or two there that made it under very strict conditions and all that. But of course, since then the the government the chemical industry in in China has exploded. There's thousands of chemical companies there now, and so a lot of those com- companies were seeing how they could sell fentanyl. Or there's hundreds of analogs or chem- chemical cousins, you might say, to fentanyl um, that they were also uh, able to sell. And the 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 government there, I think, fearing international pressure and, and, and rejection on this topic, uh, cut down on that. So there's only a few companies there that can sell it now or make it rather. And so all the other, but all the other companies still make the, the chemicals that go into fentanyl. And so that's what they're doing. So they're selling it now to Mexico and the Mexicans figured out how to make it. And so they're now making it. And that's why I say, because of that, we have the supplies that are coming in. We, they could never mail enough fentanyl safely getting it through to the source uh, the the person's headed to um you know it, it, you, you have to have 
you know, kilos and kilo loads of this stuff coming through in cars and trucks. This is only possible coming up through a 2,000 mile border that we share with a country with which we have free trade. And therefore, millions of cars and trucks and people back and forth constantly. Um, that's how you get to, that and the fact that they have access to unlimited supplies of chemicals and lots of people know how to make it. And uh, all of that combines to to mean the the enormous quantities of fentanyl that we're seeing now, you know, coast to coast from uh, L.A. Uh, out to out to New, New England. We're seeing these enormous quantities. What that says to me is that this is about demand, too. No, I, I, I disagree. I think that what's the, 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 the supply is creating the demand. First of all, nobody using, using cocaine is by, by definition is interested in a, in a depressant, a, a, an opioid. Um, but traffickers have learned that they can expand their business by including fentanyl in the cocaine. When they do that, eventually that person will become a fentanyl addict. That person intended to be only a cocaine user. Um, and, and so, and, but, but if you add enough fentanyl over a period of time, that person will become hooked and then need to buy from you every single day. Sam, I'm wondering, has that always been the case or is this something that has developed over the last, say, 10 years? Because sometimes when I talk to law enforcement and other experts, they will often say that if Americans didn't have this insatiable appetite for drugs, we wouldn't have this problem. Yeah, and I think what you need to do is go 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 drug by drug, but certainly the opioid epidemic began not because of the Mexican underworld, but it certainly began because of supply. And that was the supply provided by aggressive marketing by drug companies, legitimate pharmaceutical companies in this country, to doctors who were pressured in many, many different ways. Some of them went kicking and screaming. Uh, some of them went eagerly. But, but by and large, doctors across this country were made to embrace the idea that you could now prescribe narcotic painkillers in, in unprecedented amounts to all kinds of people, no matter the background, no real concern for what their background was, if they had any addiction in their family, anything like that. So it wasn't necessarily the trafficking world that, that created that. So it wasn't the trafficking world that created that supply. That was created by another source, but certainly you did not, you, we did not have anything remotely close to the opioid uh, her slash heroin problem that we had by 2005, 2010, you know, that we had, we never had anything remotely close to that in 93, 94, 95, 96, before this whole thing got started. On the contrary, I lived in Mexico beginning in 94 for 10 years. And I could tell you that most traffickers in Mexico didn't really care about heroin. And that was because they wanted to come, they wanted to market marijuana, of course, and, and cocaine. Why? Because heroin was a kind of a stagnant market. There was not, a, it was not a growth market. It was only later as this opioid addiction thing really got moving and, and everybody began and, and you began to see whole new swaths of people all across the country newly addicted to opioids, that's when the trafficking world in Mexico began to take significant notice of what was going on, going on up here. But that was, that was a, a demand created, I believe, I contend very strongly in my book, Dreamland, that, uh, by, by this overprescribing from year after year after year for many, for many years. Let's talk about your book, The Least of Us. If you could just talk about what you saw in doing your research that is reflected in the book. Well, I think 
first of all, of course, I was trying to describe the drug situation. Very sinister, very dour, um, ample reason for, um, for pessimism. Uh, if you, if you look at that story, um, both methamphetamine and fentanyl, um, in, in unprecedented quantities. However, along the way, I began to see that the story was also one, could be one of great optimism, um, and, and, and hope because what I began to find, the, the closer I got to the ground, meaning the closer I got to grassroots America, the more I began to find stories of people just not worrying about the, 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 yeah, no, no, you know, the, the, the polarization of this country, not worrying about a lot of things that, that uh, social media and cable TV news seems to think is the defining essence of our country, but rather finding ways of just working in small ways unnoticed ways, non-sexy ways of just kind of attempting to, to, to make their communities a little bit better, you know, and that became really my focus. Um, in fact, the most exciting and the most exhilarating part of the book, the heart and soul of the book, half the book really is about these stories from, from small towns, small communities, um, uh, people not doing anything that they expect applause for. They certainly don't believe they are you know, saving the world in some noble way. But to me, that's where it all, that's where it all begins. And that's also in the middle of the book, I was reading the Bible. Uh, I, I'm not a Christian, but I do find the Bible uh, uh, wonderful to read. And, and I read the, the, the Gospel of Matthew in which Jesus says, that which you do for the least of my brethren, you do for me. And that's where the title, the least of us, uh, comes from. It's really this idea that we, we are strongest when we hold together, when we pay attention to the folks who are, who are most in, in, in need, that we understand that we, we, you know, Jesus really understood that idea uh, very, very uh, deeply. And I think that's what he was trying to get, get across in the gospel uh, of, of Matthew. And so, so I, I began to focus really on stories of, you know, fo- stories of uh, like a guy named Bird, a guy, a man nicknamed Bird in a, in the small neighborhood in Muncie, Indiana, uh, surrounded by uh, factories that made transmissions. Capital, world capital of transmissions was Muncie for many, many years. Those plants begin to really decline and then very come, come are clearly going to be closing. The city decides it doesn't have the budget to keep open a community center right across from Bird's house. It was really kind of the, the central focus of that of that neighborhood. And eventually they do close it, except for Bird, who had worked there for a time, kept the key. You know, so as this neighborhood is really facing these stressful, dire situations, both from economics, the job decline, but also from the opioid problem and all that, Bird keeps the key and he opens it every day for the for the kids to play in. Uh, for the older folks to play cards, for for weddings, for birthdays, he mows the lawn, he fixes the toilet, he becomes a community center unto himself and helps his neighborhood weather this extraordinarily stressful several several years. And to me, so to me, the story of Bird was one of several that I tell in the book um, of people who are who are not worrying about a whole lot else besides just doing a good thing and and trying to. F- to, to figure out ways of making their neighborhood um, an easier place uh, uh, to live. And so that was, to me, the antidote to these sinister forces that we see arrayed against us, you know, drugs, but also other uh, legally addictive substances, um, 
you know, to me, this is kind of like the core of it all. And really, as I say, the heart and soul of the book. You speak with such passion about this subject. Where on a personal level did that come from? What is it that is driving you to write this series of books? Well, because first of all, I think it's because I'm a journalist and I think that's what what you get into this business to do. You tell stories, you want to tell stories, you want to tell stories that no one else has told. So the story of methamphetamine and how it seems to be it's accompanied as it marched across the country by severe symptoms of paranoia and mental illness, essentially, then homelessness, then tent encampments. That's one. On the other hand, just as exciting and, and and really more so are finding stories that that aren't so obvious, like like the story of of Bird. Um, to me, it's 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 also important because as I was writing my first book on this topic, Dreamland, I began to realize that a lot that that the roots of all this seem to be um, that we had done so much in this country to destroy and shred and ignore the community bonds that really tied us together. You know, if you think about it, community, those bonds, the community impulse in our brains is really one of these fundamental impulses that has allowed us to survive as a species. We want, we need, it's not just we like to be together, we want to be together, we need to be together. And, 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 and that has allowed us to survive literally as a species. It's that impulse. Now in, in, in American last 40 years, I would argue, we've decided that those old, those rules don't apply to us anymore. We can live apart. We can live isolated. And even though social scientists are very clear that the more isolated you are, the earlier you're going to die probably in very high likelihood. And so to me, it felt like these stories, the, the stories I'm referring to, the story of Bird and others in the book really um, were essential to tell because there was so much of our culture that wants to divide us, to add, and to fragment us, to to send us into our own little, own little hole of hopelessness. And I felt that as I got into this and very deeply over the last like nine years, I've been doing this now. Um, I began to feel that that was a was a, the dope talking. Frankly, yeah, it's pointless. It's hopeless. Be your be on your own. Don't worry about it. Nobody else thinks like you. You know, you're all alone. I, that kind of stuff is just the dope talking, honestly. That's how it feels to me frequently. And so I wanted to tell stories that were an antidote to that. You know what I mean? It's like an, an antidote to that hopelessness, isolation that we sometimes feel because so much of our world now is, is very chaotic and tumultuous, you know? So that was where I would answer your question. I would say that was where the impulse to write the stories of the, the unnoticed, the non-sexy stories of people just doing small things. I think those are every bit as dramatic and exhilarating as, as, as other stories I've told in my career. I would agree with that. Sam Quinones, thank you. My pleasure. Thank you, Jeff. The DEA administrator recently announced a nationwide law enforcement surge to disrupt the distribution of deadly synthetic drugs. She sat down with Face the Nation moderator, Margaret Brennan. We now turn to the growing opioid crisis, and we want to welcome to the program Anne Milgram, the head of the Drug Enforcement Administration. Good morning to you. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Why is it so hard to cut off the flow of fentanyl, which is the drug that seems to be fueling these overdoses? 
Well, that, that's correct. Fentanyl right now is driving the overdose epidemic that we're seeing in the United States. And fentanyl is a different drug threat than we've seen before. It's synthetic, meaning that it's man-made. It's made of chemicals. Right now, those chemicals are largely sourced from China. They're going to the Mexican criminal drug cartels that are then mass-producing, often at an industrial scale, fentanyl. Fentanyl, tiny, tiny amounts can be deadly. The CDC reports that two milligrams can be a deadly dose. It is a minuscule amount, the amount that could fit on the tip of your pen. So it's cheap to make. It's relatively easy to make. Tiny quantities of fentanyl are incredibly potent and addictive and can be deadly. And so it's a new threat. There's also an unlimited amount that the cartels can actually make. So when I was starting as a prosecutor, Cocaine comes from cocoa, right? Um, comes from coca leaves. You've got heroin coming from poppies. You had to wait for those plants to grow. This is totally different. All a criminal actor needs are some chemicals and a little bit of know-how, and they're able to produce one of the most deadly substances on the planet. Are people seeking it out as a drug, or is it just something that they're surprised is mixed into the drugs they're seeking? So what we're seeing now, overwhelmingly, and we just finished a, a major... It, United States takedown across the country over the last two and a half months, where we were focused on the, the deadly fake pills that the cartels are making and that are being moved into the United States at unprecedented amounts. And so what happens is that the cartels are mass producing these pills in Mexico mostly, and they're making them look like they're real oxycodone, like they're real hydrocodone, Percocet, Adderall, and then they're bringing them, flooding them into the United States and falsely advertise them, marketing them as though they were real pharmaceuticals. So you have a teen on Snapchat, an older American who's looking for a pain medicine that they might be able to get cheaper online, and they're finding these pills. The Americans believe that they're getting the actual pharmaceutical pill, they're not. What they're getting is fentanyl. And that is why we're seeing 100,000 overdose deaths this year. 64,000 of those are attributed to synthetic opioids like fentanyl. This week, uh, President Biden signed two executive orders to fight drug trafficking, and it allowed for a crackdown on fentanyl producers, particularly in China. So as someone trying to prosecute and, and get those who are bringing these chemicals in, poison, you called it, being pumped into America. What tools does this give you now? I mean, how do you get Beijing to hand over the bad guys? Well, let, let me start by saying that China needs to do more. There are hundreds of thousands of unregulated chemical companies in China that are sending these drugs, these precursor chemicals that can be made into fentanyl, and even the prior chemicals, we call them pre-precursor pre -precursor chemicals. And they're advertising. Those chemical companies are advertising. You can use this to make fentanyl. So we know what they're doing. China knows what they're doing. They need to do more. What the president's EO does, his executive order does, is it gives us new tools, particularly around illicit finance. One of the things that drives drug trafficking worldwide is money laundering taking those profits and laundering them through different means. We see a lot of that illicit finance happening both in China and in Mexico. So these are new tools that we can use. The other EO by the president set up a, um, an organization across government focused on transnational organized crime. That is narcotics trafficking. It's also other types of organized crime that we see worldwide, but a big part of that revolves around narcotics trafficking. So those tools are really important for us to have. The State Department put out um, 
a $5 million reward on the head of one man in particular in China, someone that the Justice Department also filed charges against, a Chinese national. He's outside your reach. You can't so, get him. There's a couple of things that are important to know about that. First of all, that's a DEA investigation. Those charges were brought in Texas as a result of the work that DEA has done around fentanyls and fentanyl precursors. So that individual, Yin, for 20 years, he's been trafficking first in steroids, recently in fentanyl and fentanyl precursors. So that $5 million reward is to help us bring him to justice in the United States. The laws we have in the United States under the Controlled Substances Act, under the narco-terrorism statutes, they let us reach foreign actors who have a nexus to the United States, who are drug trafficking worldwide with a nexus to the U.S. So we can investigate and charge those individuals. But now that there's cryptocurrency being used rather than just traditional bank accounts, doesn't that make your job harder? No question about it. So cryptocurrency is one way that we see drug traffickers and these major criminal networks operating. Also on the dark net, we did a major takedown recently with Interpol um, worldwide looking at the dark net and finding leads that we can find. So one of the key parts about my job now is to really do everything I can to modernize DEA, to make sure that our incredible men and women worldwide have the tools and the technologies that they need to meet this moment, this historic unprecedented moment of 100,000 American deaths and what we know are major criminal networks that are making billions of dollars by trafficking in drugs. So that's the supply. When it comes to the demand, people are seeking this out, as you said, um, seeking out some kind of drug, even if they're accidentally getting fentanyl. The social media companies, you have said, are very much a conduit, TikTok, Snapchat. Yes. How are people seeking out these drugs intentionally on these social media platforms? And what are you doing to get the companies to crack down? Well, the social media conversation, I think, is a critical one because drug traffickers are harnessing social media because it is accessible. They're able to access millions of Americans and it is anonymous. And they're able to sell these fake pills that are not what they say they are. They're able to sell those and to lie on those social media sites about that. So we know every single day across America that drugs are being sold on these social media sites, Snapchat, TikTok, Facebook. When you go on your smartphone, and all of us have smartphones today, they could be in a child's bedroom, in someone's car, wherever you are, those traffickers are there too. And the minute you open up one of those social media apps, they're there and they're waiting. They want to make it one click to get drugs into people's hands in the United States of America. We know what's happening and so do the social media companies. So my very strong point on this is that yesterday in our takedown, 76 of our cases are directly linked to social media websites where there is extensive narcotics trafficking happening. So you're building a case against the social media companies? We've built a case against, the at this moment, the criminal drug networks. And we've drawn the line this in this enforcement takedown, and I think it's critical to point this out, that we've drawn that line between the Mexican criminal cartels that are mass-producing illicit fentanyl and making these fake pills and pouring it into the United States. We've drawn the line between them and the networks that are selling these drugs and killing Americans through social media. And so what we're doing is investigating. We want to understand everything about how this is happening. And of course, the social media companies need to do more. They need to be proactive. If we know it's happening, we know they know it's happening. Well, and they they have said, investigations have found there are 
you know, that they are handling it, but their algorithms do redirect people if they are seeking something out. There is no question that they know that these social media, and we released yesterday a code, sort of the codes that are used. So, for example, on Snapchat, what Snapchat does is they have 24-hour stories that then disappear. Mm -hmm. And so what a drug dealer does is they go onto that Snapchat, they create a new story, they put in one of the emojis that signals that they're a drug dealer, and then they have people coming in, and they're sort of marketing these fake pills through that method. At the end of that 24-hour, Snapchat takes it down. It is a haven it is a haven for drug traffickers. So this is these are emojis. These are symbols and codes. This isn't like someone going on, how do I buy fentanyl? It could be both. But, but remember also that people aren't looking for fentanyl. Part of what we see happening here, we see, I talked a little bit about as part of this enforcement takedown, there was a 15-year-old in Idaho who was looking for an oxy pill. He went on Snapchat. He bought a single oxy pill, and he died. And he thought it was oxy. It was fentanyl. He didn't know that. So when you look at people searching, they're not searching for fentanyl. Overwhelmingly, they're searching for oxy, for Xanax, for Adderall. And again, there are a lot of Americans who believe that you could buy a legitimate pharmaceutical pill online. And it's critical, especially at the holidays when we know risk factors go up. It's critical that everyone understand that one pill can kill. Parents and family members talk to their kids, to, to friends, to colleagues colleagues, that they understand the harm that is out there right now. So what would you tell parents who are listening at home terrified at what you're describing? What can they actually do? Well, they need to sit and talk with their kids. The research is clear that when parents talk to children, drug use goes down in half. And we know that there are kids who don't understand these risks. We know that there are older Americans as well. All of us don't understand this risk. This is a new threat. So the, people shouldn't be expected to know it. We need to help people understand one pill can kill. The only medicine that they should take is what's prescribed to them mm -hmm. personally and filled at a local pharmacy. And also the other piece of this is what we see dealers and, and drug trafficking networks doing now is that they're lacing other drugs with fentanyl. They're lacing cocaine, methamphetamine, heroin. Even there was a case recently in Connecticut with marijuana being laced with fentanyl. So no drugs are safe right now because fentanyl is being put into those drugs because it's highly addictive, because people come back again and again. But then they're killing their customers. They're killing their customers. Um, when you talk about the supply coming into the United States, um, we know since the beginning of the Biden administration, there has been a surge of migrants crossing the border. A lot of these drug cartels also traffic in people, in humans. What are you doing? What is the DEA portion of that story at the U.S. border to stop that? This is a really important conversation to have because criminal drug networks are ruthless and they will stop at nothing to get these drugs into the United States. The profit margin on synthetic drugs like fentanyl is enormous. And so they will do whatever it takes to get those drugs in. We've seen since 2015, when the fentanyl threat really started in the United States, since 2015, year after year, 2016, that amount went up. 2017, the amount of fentanyl coming into the United States went up. 2018, 2019, 2020, 2021. We have to understand that there is an unlimited amount of synthetic fentanyl that the criminal drug cartels in Mexico can make and that they will stop at nothing to get them into the United States and to flood our communities with this poison. Why isn't interdiction working? It is working in one sense, which is that 
we've taken off 20 million fake pills this year. We estimate at the DEA lab that four in 10 of those pills are potentially deadly. We've taken off 15,000 pounds of fentanyl this year. That is enough potentially lethal doses to kill every single American. So we are doing a lot of work to make sure that we are taking those drugs off the street. It is also, and you see this from the work we did yesterday, we're focused on tracking those overdose deaths and working back to understand the full network from Mexico to Main Street that is causing harm and is killing Americans. It's not enough for us to do one drug trafficker here and there. Mm -hmm. We have to be targeted at the entire network so that we can take them down. We can take advantage of the executive order the president just signed on illicit finance. So whether somebody is processing chemicals in China, mass producing these drugs in Mexico, involved in money laundering and illicit finance, we need to take them down as part of these organizations. So tensions between the DEA and the Mexican government are not new. This is always a difficult conversation. When it comes to fentanyl, when it comes to what you're talking about right now, which is just a flood across the border, what is the current Mexican government doing when you ask them to help you? Well, to me, we're in the middle... We're in the middle of an unprecedented moment. 100,000 Americans have died. That's more Americans than died from car crashes. That's more Americans that died from car crashes and gun violence in the past year. This is, it, it is unprecedented and it is tragic. So to me, DEA has to do everything we can to meet this moment. We have to do more than we've ever done before. And so does Mexico and so does China. And so to me, this is about saving lives. This is about, these drugs are killing Americans at record rates. And we have to do everything we possibly can. So we work with the Mexican government wherever we can. The administration has a new high-level security dialogue with Mexico. And my message to all of our partners is that the DEA is standing up to do more to protect American communities. And we need Mexico to do more. And we need China to do more as well. But then in America's backyard, you have failing states or failed states. You've got Venezuela. You've got Haiti. These are havens for drug trafficking. Isn't that all making your job that much harder? And doesn't the administration need to do more to cut that off, that flow of drugs? Our foreign work is so essential to the work that DEA does. And I've been at DEA now for five months, and I can tell you that every single day I am so grateful for our men and women worldwide because everything they do is about protecting the United States and making communities here safe and healthy, whether it's in one of the countries you talk about or just as we're talking about, the threat from Mexico and from China right now is immense. That is the key threat. So as we think about our work, DEA operates worldwide. We do whatever we need to do to protect the United States within our laws and our jurisdictions, and it is critical that this issue be elevated just in the way I think the president was doing this week with forming this new transnational organized crime group um, that will go across the United States government to really say this has to be a top priority wherever we find it in the world. But where do you fit in to the migration crisis right now? I mean, is, is stopping the flow of drugs a required step to stop the flow of people as well if it's the cartels who are behind both? The cartels will do anything to get drugs in. And I think it's really important to note that we see drugs coming into the United States in every way you can imagine. Yes, we see it coming through the border. We see it coming through ports, through airplanes, through freight services, through parcel delivery services. Again, it's anything the cartels can do to get them into the United States. And because it is a new deadly threat that, remember, also that fentanyl tiny quantities 
are deadly and extremely potent and addictive. So it's not in years past where someone would have to bring kilos upon kilos into the United mm-hmm. States to be able to to bring you know traffic and flood the United States with drugs. It is almost minuscule quantities right now. So the threat has changed enormously. And to me, my job is to be relentlessly focused on those criminal drug networks that are bringing this harm to our people and are killing Americans. So if it's coming through the U.S. mail system, I mean, do you need to do more right in a regulatory way to to separate the legitimate through the illegitimate drugs that are coming to your front door? So we work closely with the Postal Service. I mean, I, I think the short answer is all of us have to do more. Right. I mean, this is a moment where we know that drugs are killing Americans at record rates. And that, to me, means both going after the networks and taking them down in any way we can and also helping the people who are harmed. Right. Mm -hmm. And so and being a part of our communities where we see these overdose deaths and drug related violence. So the answer is we all we work closely together across the government, but we have to do more than we're doing because we know the threat has evolved and changed, and it's critical that we meet this moment and this threat in every way we possibly can to stop this from happening. And lastly, we have seen a spike in homicide, homicide rates across the country in major cities. There are fewer police on the streets as well. Uh, how much of that do you attribute to drug trafficking and the part of the puzzle that you look at? So. We worry about this all the time, and and part of what we do is we have to be focused on the harm in communities, and that is drug-related violence in many communities. In the takedown we just did, in 570 cases, we took 288 guns off the streets of the United States in just over two months. 31 of those cases are directly related to murders and shootings. So we know that there is an there is a, a deep and long-standing link between drug trafficking and violence in our communities. That's why we prioritize work around identifying the individuals in communities who are responsible for that drug-related violence and targeting those specific networks. And you see a connection to COVID as well? Uh, there's no question that COVID has made all of this in so many ways more difficult. It's limited treatment access for a lot of Americans. Um, it, there's there's no question that COVID has made all of this. And I think in some ways it's also masked because all of us are so concerned about COVID that I think it, it was a real milestone and just a tragic one to see that 100,000 lives had been lost. And were it not for COVID, I think we would have been talking about this every single day across our country. But of course, um, you know, it's been a very, very difficult time. And Milgram, thank you for your time thank you. today. That is it for this week's America Change Forever. You can download previous episodes wherever you download your podcasts. Also, you can follow me on Twitter at Jeff Begay's CBS, where you can send program ideas. What do you want us to look into? And follow me on Instagram at Jeff Begay's 6. My thanks to Paul Woody Woodhull and District Productive. I'm Jeff Begay's, and that is how America Changed Forever. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. 
I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.